the middle of Numbers 16 through 18, which is Korah's rebellion, and it is basically a rebellion against God's appointed priesthood. Now there's a sidebar rebellion against Moses' leadership as well. But we finished last Sunday uh, with kind of the beginnings of the story itself. Uh, God basically says everyone that doesn't want to be destroyed with Korah, get away from Korah. And then he opens up the earth and swallows all of the leaders of the rebellion, which is a sign of God's eternal wrath. Uh, someone that came to me last week and asked, is that where we get the pit of hell? You know, they've opened up the pit and they go down. I said, I don't know if that's true, but, but it certainly is, is uh, the picture's clear. That's what's going on with them. Now, trying to make everything connect to our relationship with Christ The way into God's presence is narrow. There are not many ways into God's presence. And God appoints uh, the way, like he determines it, he dictates that way. And in the Old Testament, that was through God's anointed a priesthood, which was Aaron. And so to try to say that they could have a different way, Korah was of the Levites, but he wasn't of Aaron, to try to say that you had a different way really was more than just an issue of rebellion to God's word, although it very much is that. But it's, it's, a, uh, it's a belittling of God's appointed way of coming into his presence. And it would be similar for us today to saying, I can get to God in some other way besides Christ. So if you start understanding that, then you understand why God swallows up Korah in his rebellion, right? Because if you try to get to God a different way than his appointed means of in Christ, you're, gonna, you're, you're lost. There's no other way that's going to make you safe through the judgment so that you can make it to eternity. So that's why this issue of Korah's rebellion is, is important. God says, I've got a way of doing this, even though Jesus will not be of the Aaronic priesthood, and there'll be reasons for that if you read the book of Hebrews. But it's still, the point is God determines the means. You either trust in his means, or you develop your own. That's the only, that's the way it works out. So, we have to submit to God's means of provision. It's not... We're not, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, we're not, we're not somehow uh, belittling God by saying that there's only one way to heaven. So that's kind of where we are in this. Now, I find it interesting that the uh, Korah had these censers, and the censers was a sign of the priesthood taking uh, the prayers of the saints into the Holy of Holies. And they take the censers of these false prophets or priests and they burn them, they melt them all down. You guys remember what they did with them? This is all just kind of review from. They put them on the bronze altar, like they cover the bronze altar with them. So it's really a, a uh, special thought that, that from there on out, 
uh, the sin of trying to earn your own way to God or have your own way to get into God is what must be burned on the altar, right? It's a constant reminder that we there's only one way in. So, um, okay, so you can imagine if God doesn't squelch this rebellion, God's people, even us today, would, would think that there's more than one way into glory. So, all right, so... Um, What's interesting in this, this passage is God really deals with the problem multiple times. So you would think that the, that the first time of just, uh, we'll just do that, of the ground opening up and everybody being swallowed up in it, you think that would be enough, right? That would be enough to say, don't try any other way, <laughs> only in Aaron, uh, but that's, not so, God keeps going. So, uh, and you would also think that God's people uh, would learn the lesson, right? So after this first uh, demonstration of God's uh, wrath and his uh, affirmation of, of Aaron, You'd think that'd be enough. But that's where we are in Numbers chapter 16, beginning at verse 41. Who would like to read for us? Do we have a microphone back there, Barry? All right, Christian will do that. Wait for the mic. Well, go get the mic, Christian. Barry's trying to do multiple things at once. There we go. Just 41. 41 through 50. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> You can do it, Christian. Read fast through any names. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumble against Moses and against Aaron. I mean, doesn't that immediately just like on the next day? Okay, keep going. Saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron... They turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it for off the altar and lay and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for for them for wrath has gone out from the lord the plague has begun so aaron took it as moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Okay. I can pass it around if you want to. All right. 
in our, let's put this, bring it into our day first, then we'll go back and you'll see what's, it's very parallel. So when you say that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ, do, do most people who oppose that idea, do they say, oh, that's God's, like, do they say, oh, that's God making the way narrow? No, they say you're making the way narrow. You're doing it. You're misrepresenting God. That's what they say. Right? Is that any different than what's going on here? You know, Moses is the one that stood up and he said, look, if, there's, if I'm wrong, th- then these guys are going to die normal deaths. If not, if I'm right, these guys are going to be... So the people of Israel in, interpret that as it's Moses' fault. He's the one doing this. And so they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Because people don't want to acknowledge that their real battle is against God himself. So, God has to, first lesson is just the, you know, the, uh, I guess I'll put some arrows in here. People being swallowed up. Second lesson is a plague, right? God has to teach the same lesson against, again, they actually accuse, notice the, the accusation, you have killed the people of the Lord. That's very similar to what people tell, accuse Christians of. You're the ones that are like condemning people. You're the judgmental ones, right? They were not enough to say that God is the one who's established one means of salvation. No, it's you Christians who have done this, okay? So it's not, it's not um, what's going on there and what's happening today. There's not, it's nothing new. It's the same kind of struggle that we have, okay? And it, I just, you've killed the people of, I mean, they are, just the twisting of things, um, And it's also just another twisting there. If you're the people of the Lord, then God's not right to judge the people of the Lord. And yet God is more than willing to judge his own people in this situation. So, all right. uh, So what is God going to do about it? Isn't it interesting? You see that language there? Susan said he's going to take them out. Get away from the midst of the congregation because I'm going to kill them all. And I write down, no person, even those living in the covenant, should have assurance of salvation if they are living in hardened rebellion to God. And how do Moses and Aaron respond? Right, they just have to immediately respond, don't they? And notice the use of the word atonement. Right? Moses 
doesn't just plead for mercy in general, does he? He could have just said, Lord, have mercy on him. Right? Moses has done that in the past. He's just said, Lord, have mercy on him. And God has had mercy on him, but not here. Because the lesson is about the priesthood. And so Moses even makes use of the priesthood here. Take your censer, Aaron. Put your fire on it from the altar and carry it to the congregation. So that he is putting forth Aaron in this. I find this really uh, humble. The more you see things like this, you realize Moses is humble. It merits him saying he's, one, he's the most humble man at that time on the earth. Because he's the leader of God's people. He was the one who brought them up out of Egypt. He was the one that did He's the one that even appoints Aaron. God spoke to him to appoint Aaron. And yet in this place, Moses says, it's Aaron. Aaron's intercession. Because it's all, the lesson in all of this is it's God's appointed priesthood. So Aaron, uh, and I, if no one else has learned the lesson, Moses has. It's not me, it's Aaron, okay? Um, and, and Aaron actually walks out with his incense. He stands in between, look, look where he stands, in between the living and the dead. Now, is that not a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, our high priest? Do you think that the people who were in the group that were talking against Moses was just part of the congregation, like in the day in in the wilderness where a number of them rose up and Korah's, debauchery. Korah's rebellion is a, we talked about this last week, it's a southern rebellion, not to put that with our own country, but it is a portion of the, like Korah is on the south side of the temple, and Reuben, uh, Reuben I think, is with him. But, but it be, at this point, it becomes the whole congregation is grumbling against him. So that means all the people are grumbling against Moses and Aaron at this point. And, and when, they, when he's standing between the living and the dead, do you think something was happening to their bodies that was so apparent that the living people were just getting away from them, kind of like lepers or something like well, that? Well, I mean, I, I, don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's so much that uh, there's like a... a death squad that picks up people and puts them, you know, moves them to the area of the dead. I don't know, but it's, uh, the, I think everyone was getting visible signs of the plague on them and just not everyone was dead yet. So, um, thank you. Yep. And notice how the plague is stopped. Now, just picture, all right, Christian? No, you're just stretching. Okay, good. 
Coach, just rebuke me if this is wrong to ask. It's never wrong to ask. There's never a wrong question unless it's an insincere question. Um, I wonder how much, um, like, we have let go of, um, like, that type of intercession. Like, when we see a friend just, you know, falling off the faith, I feel like I pray for them, you know. Sincerely, I do, and I say, please saving God and being prayed for them and stuff like that. But, like, how much, you know, like, more we should be, like, in, interceding and, like, praying maybe for hours, begging God to bring him back into faith. It makes me feel like, you know, in this situation, something like that was done and we have let go of that where we just, you know, pray and, you know, read the scripture and stuff like that. But fervently, we should be striving to be like that. So basically, what I'll, that's more of a statement, and I would say I agree with that statement. Just because Christ is the primary intercessor doesn't mean that gets us off the hook. We are his hands and feet, and therefore we are supposed to intercede as well. And you can think about this when the one falling away is your own child, you're going to go to great lengths to try to pull them back again. And it does, re, it does sometimes reflect that we maybe don't care about some people's falling away, that we just lift up a quick prayer and move on. Uh, and I think that you're right. In the church, we should have a community such that when one of our members falls away, we should go to try to win them back. Um, and uh, how much do you do? You know, it's, it's hard to say. You can't force them to come back. But you're right. You should have a, a, a more doggedness, a more determination. I think that's a good thing. As long as you understand that this passage isn't primarily about our intercession, it's only secondarily. The primary lesson is Christ's intercession. He's the high priest. So, um, you know. And, and that's actually what we're pleading is that our high priest would actually go in and intercede and stand before God and, and redeem them. So that makes any sense. Go ahead. You're thinking. I see the wheels turning in your head. No, and that's, that's why we, we do have prayer meetings and we do do that for the purpose of interceding for both those who are not falling away to preserve in their faith and those who are um, falling away to, to be brought back. And so I'll never forget one of my seminary professors said, he warned us as pastors, don't let the prayer meetings in your church become organ recitals. And what he meant by that is just praying for people's body parts. Like, that's really the importance of our prayers. He says, it's okay to pray if somebody's got going in for heart surgery. You should pray for those kind of things. But the most important thing you should be praying for are, is the faith of the people in your congregation. And if somebody's fallen away, that they're brought back, that, that that's the heartbeat of your prayers. And so we should regularly as a church be known for, for intercessory prayer for our, one another. Okay, Lee?
in my reading this week, I've been looking in, in Mark, and in Mark 9, do you remember the young boy with the unclean spirit? And mm-hmm. this was a very strong spirit. Mm-hmm. And I just was so impressed. The Lord Jesus says, and this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so we see the power mm-hmm. of prayer. And so I feel like our belief in our prayers mm-hmm. is really an important aspect of it. It isn't just, yes, I care and whatever. It's believing in the power of our prayers. Excellent. And, and again, never, you know, Jesus keep me near the cross. You have no right to intercede except that you have Jesus as your intercessor, right? So, like, you, you might be uh, in fellowship with God right now and therefore can pray for those who are maybe falling away, but, but you're only kept yourself by the intercession of Christ, and, and he's interceding for you. And so as you plead um, for someone, it's not on the strength of your person, you're not the, the special high priest. You're pleading based on the blood of Christ and the mercy of God in Christ. So let's just always remind ourselves to keep, keep Christ at the center of everything. So, uh, okay, uh, this, this um, we're going to move into chapter 17 here, but this story is picked up in, in the book of Psalms. And I, I, this is a slight... Uh, movement here, but turn over to Psalm 106. So, I I just bring this up because I want to try to help us understand the importance of singing psalms. Uh, Oh, yes, God wants us to sing hymns as well. But in Psalm 106, it's, a, it's a, uh, a psalm of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, you know, graciousness. And then in verse 16, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. So this is just a quick, you know, statement uh, I wonder if it's the reason why they don't use Korah, because some of the singers were actually Korah. Korah's singers were known. <laughs> I don't know exactly why they don't use Korah, but anyway, they bring up this, this event in song. So this, it's like their songs should be encouraging. This is a song of thanksgiving, but they're not afraid to bring up in the song a, a challenge that you don't want to be rebellious like uh, they were at that time. Uh, so... <clears throat> Again, we could go long into Psalm 106 and all that's going on about that, but, but I just wanted to, you to see that in a time where not everybody had their own written copy of Scripture, they did have songs, psalms, and this was much later, and they were, they were singing those in order to remember the stories of God in the Old Testament so that had gone before. So they wouldn't forget those lessons because God definitely wants us to remember these things. And when you think about how few times we study the book of Numbers, how important that it might be in 
a song that we have that we could actually keep that in our mind, right? To, to remind ourselves of that. Okay, moving on. Back to number 17. So first lesson, judgment, the earth opens up. Second one, plague, Aaron intercedes. We're not done yet. There still has to be another one, okay? Uh, So number 17, 1 to 7, who would like to read for us? Howard, you want to read? Great. The whole chapter? Uh, Read 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and their leaders gave them gave him twelve staffs, one from one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes, and Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. Okay. So given what we've already seen in in chapter sixteen. And these major issues, these major demonstrations that it's the Aaronic priesthood, why do we need this? This is a, okay, so there's, there's a physical proof of the staff. Okay. Other, this is, this is an open question, just you musing to try to figure this out. So it's not really. So like, if you've already had the earth swallow up, it's not Korah. Uh, and you've, you've uh, been given Aaron stepping out in front of the people in the midst of them, and the plague stops, isn't that enough to recognition that Aaron is the, the one? Why do we even need chapter 17? Isn't this redundant? That's my question. Why do we bring... There's, okay, so, so they still are grumbling, and they're maybe still unsure... Okay, so it could just be two or three witnesses. Two hundred and fifty. Right, yep. Yeah. Good. Right, because it's the... It's out of the whole pool of the people of God, not just from a portion. Yep, good. Takes Moses out of it, okay. And remember, they thought that it might have been Moses' fault when the earth opened up, so maybe this is just another ploy of Aaron and Moses to, uh, you know, in their little magical abilities. Remember, they came up out of Egypt, so they understand that priests have magical abilities, so, so maybe Aaron has been able to do this in some way, 
uh, and it's not really God's choice. So, <clears throat> seems more democratic, doesn't it? <laughs> Give everyone an opportunity. Uh, That's a good question. Is it so much that Aaron was chosen or that the other 11 are not chosen? That's a, uh, I think that that is a, uh, that is a question, an insightful question to, um, to put even to our own election as people, to salvation. You can't elect, like, there are some people that argue that God elects the, the chosen for salvation, but he doesn't elect the non-elect and that's just impossible to elect one and not another I mean it's like that that's just the way election works you choose one you're not choosing the others right so that's so go ahead yep yep That's right. That's right. And as we said last week, everybody in the Israel was special. And even in the New Testament, we are a kingdom of priests. But that does not mean that God can't appoint in his church elders and deacons as leaders, right? We go to great lengths to, to try to explain that the elders and deacons are not just the elected officials of the church, that God is actually the one who does the choosing of them because he's the, he's the one that appoints his leaders. Um, okay, so the plan is very simple. It's not hard to explain. Everybody puts their staffs in, and uh, Aaron puts his in as well, and we're going to see which one God chooses. So uh, 8 to 11, um, let's have uh, either Annalise or Jet once you guys read 8 to 11. On the, next, yeah, it's on. on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and borne ripe almonds. And then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be keep to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him, and so he did. Okay, thank you. Um, this is always called Aaron's staff buds. Why is it? That is so like, no, it, it, it budded, it blossomed, and you have a fully ripened fruit from a dead staff. You think of a, a staff that's just, you know, stick, and you throw it in, and then, boom, all this happens. So it's pretty... Pretty awesome. You're not going to uh, accuse this of some kind of trickery here. Um, so, yes, absolutely. It is. It is beautiful. So you take that which is dead. So, 
and you give life. So what we saw earlier is in the intercession of Aaron, people were heading towards death, and that death was prevented. But here, we see that in the priesthood, you take that which is dead and make it fruit-bearing life. Right? So is that the same? Is that what Jesus does for us? Right? He doesn't just stop the punishment of God over you. He actually takes your dead soul, brings it to life so that you're bearing fruit. Abide in me, and it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit as our priest. So, uh, the blooming almond branch, this is uh, Ian Duguid, the blooming almond branch was a symbol of the certainty that the Lord would fulfill his promise of great blessing for his people through the gift of the priesthood. That's the point. You blossom as an almond branch. You are the ones that are going to have life because of your high priest. That's why you don't want any other high priest. It's not just God doing a nice little miracle on a staff. That is symbolic of what he is going to do through his high priesthood for his people. This is why it's so important that your high priest is also the creator. Because he has to be able to create life within a dead soul. Verse 10, the Lord speaks to Moses. What does he tell him there? Put that staff back. It's, it's put, I don't have my little uh, tabernacle here, but in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, the, the box, that Ark of the Testimony, they called it, uh, put the staff in there, uh, and then that will be an ongoing testimony to the people of God that it is Aaron uh, as God's appointed um, priest. Notice what God calls his beloved people. Rebels. So are you a saint or are you a rebel? Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't lose sight of the fact that you are a saint. Right? But also don't lose sight of the fact that your old nature is one of being a rebel. Uh, he, the question is, is this the same staff that becomes a snake? Um, I don't think so. Uh, but it, we'll get to that because it's in the book of Numbers that this occurs. So, and it could be, but... Uh, um, we'll have to look at that later. I don't remember all my notes on it. Uh, I know that I remember dealing with this, but I don't remember. Oh, 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 back there. Well, maybe, is it, oh, you're talking about that one way back with Pharaoh, not, not the serpent that's held up in the wilderness for the people to look at when the snakes are biting. Huh? The Pharaoh. I don't know. It, it could be. It's Aaron's staff. So, anybody else have thoughts on that? 
I, I, I don't know. It doesn't explicitly say it is, but it's Aaron's staff, so could be. That they're new staffs? How, how do you get the new? Get them staffs? So like maybe like make them staffs? Okay. What does your translation say get or does it say? Yeah. Yeah. I think each each house had a staff that represented their house. Um, yeah, I don't under, I don't know. I know that I have a staff that's got my name on it because your son carved it for me and put my name on it, so it's in my office. <laughs> Hasn't budded yet. Uh, it, 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 that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I know that we have the exact dimensions of the ark. Um, seemed like it was only like four feet or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't like six feet. So it could be that they broke the staff or cut it in two. I don't know. Um, put it on the deck and I'll just wedge it in there. It won't fit. It's like when you're, uh, you know, packing your, your vehicle to go on vacation, you're stuffing things in. Can you get this in there? Um, I don't know. Okay. 12 and 13, let's finish this chapter and then move into 18. So, uh, Laura Vesey, would you read for us? And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Okay, so I don't know if this is you guys, but uh, Mike Kruger, president at RTS in Charlotte, I was listening to him in a Bible study. He says, as a pastor, you're trying to convince half, your, half of your uh, congregation that they are sinners and you're trying to convince the other half that they're cleansed and clean in Christ. That's, your, that's the only two things you're doing as a pastor. Some people don't think they're sinful. They don't think they need Christ. And then the ones who know that they need Christ think that they're undone. And Christ is not enough. And that's exactly what's happening right here. So finally, the people of God get that everything that they have done has been wrong. And what is their conclusion? We're done. That's it. We're done. The whole point is that they have an interceder, and God has appointed him, and yet they think that they're completely undone. But that's the same thing with us. As soon as you really feel the weight of your sin, you think you can't be forgiven. As long as you think your sin is kind of small, ah, I can be forgiven of that. But if you feel the weight of just how evil is your rebellion to God, you will think it can't be forgiven. And only the gospel coming into that will alleviate your conscience. Only the blood of Christ, only his death on the cross is sufficient to cleanse your conscience from that deep-seated guilt. We are undone. Because if you feel your sin the way you're supposed to feel your sin, you know you should be rotting in the pit of hell. 
And that's what they're getting right here. God has brought them to that point. Duguid, uh, Duguid again, quotes J. Gresham Machen, uh, another reformer of the 20th century. There are those who tell us that fear ought to be banished from religion. We ought, it is said, no more to hold before men's eyes the fear of hell. It is said, uh, fear, it is said, is an ignoble noble thing. No way. It's wrong. It's not bad for you to feel the fear of what your sins deserve. What is wrong is when you do not finish with Christ. Dr. Kelly always said, you deal with your sin, feel the weight of your sin, condemn yourself, but finish with Christ. He is sufficient. And that's what you have to do. Um, questions or comments? It's two and a quarter foot wide and high and three and three quarters feet long. I thought it was around four feet, yeah, so not even four feet. Thank you. What's the song? Praise the grace that taught my heart to fear. Praise the grace those fears relieved, something like that. Which book of the Bible was written solely for the purpose of convincing God's people that Jesus Christ was sufficient to cleanse them from all their sin? Huh? Hebrews. That's right. That's its one purpose. There is no other place to go but in Jesus Christ. Um, Pretty awesome. All right, any other questions on this chapter? Comments? Are you thankful for Jesus? With, between uh, Aaron's staff in the lampstand, and I just thought that was interesting. I was, I was studying the lampstand okay. yep. because of this. Wax eloquently, Mary. Tell us about your study. This is good. <laughs> so the lampstand is in the, in the uh, it's the menorah. One, two, three. There's the lampstand. So what's the, what's the connection? Because there is. The almond flowers. So in the. In the lampstand, they have all these cups. And these cups are in the shape of almonds. Okay? And they're, they're cupped like that because you're supposed to pour oil, olive oil, into these cups. And that is to... Um, 
be a symbol of the light in this tent, right? Uh, uh, and it's it's of and I, and they're not just on the top. There's it's like they're there's they're all the way down like this. There's a, yes the so so you've got the flower, you've got the the, the almond flower. That's what the cup is, right? It's it's an almond flower. So this is it's a symbol of the tree budding, basically. Very good. And I, uh, which prophet? Zechariah? Zephaniah? I know, but is it in Zephaniah or Zechariah? Uh, anyway, is there, they, uh, there's a prophecy that says that uh, it's like there's a tree here and a tree here, and these, these olives are, are, instead of you having to, to put olive oil onto it all the time, the priest had to keep refilling it up, the, the prophecy is that these two olive trees representing Zerubbabel and, uh, I forget the other guy. Anyway, they are, they're like continually uh, squeezing juice into this to make this go, and it's all a symbol of Christ as well, that he is the one uh, who's pouring the Holy Spirit, which is the oil of our salvation, uh, into us. So, yeah, I mean, the, the imagery just keeps going and going and going, uh, pointing us to Christ. So, thank you, Mary. Any other comments? Okay. Chapter 18. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Uh, Oh, let's see here. Carolyn, you want to read for us? One through five? Yeah. The Lord said to Aaron, You, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary, and you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for the offenses against the priesthood. Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the testimony. They are to be responsible to you and are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar, or both they and you will die. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting, all the work at the tent, and no one else may come near when you, where you are. Okay, so first off, who is God speaking to? Aaron. If you know anything about like life up to this point, God's always speaking to Moses. And now God is speaking to Aaron. And again, this is just a response. Aaron is the one who's, who's the, the focal point of the story. And it's not going to be too much longer. And Moses is going to strike the rock, and he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land, and the Aaronic priesthood will go into the, into the land. So this will be an ongoing thing rather than, um, say, Joshua taking the place of Moses, and he's the one that continues to speak with God. No, it's the Aaronic priesthood that God is setting forth as the way that God is going to communicate with his people. We would argue that that is primarily two ways. He's speaking to us in Christ, but he's also speaking to us in the word of God. 
That's, the, that's our foundation of our faith in the word of the apostles in the New Testament. So anyway, but he's speaking to Aaron. Uh, and in this chapter, uh, what we're seeing is basically an outworking of God having fixed the problem of the, the Korah's rebellion. Okay? So, um, interestingly enough, there are signs in this chapter of how gracious God is to the Levites. Can you see God's graciousness to the Levites in this, these verses? Yes. Now, if you have been a part of insinuating the rebellion against Aaron and Moses, well, if I were in charge, I would get those people away. You know how the the camp of Israel is like this, and you have the Levites? Well, actually, on this is Aaron here in the front. Um, But the Levites are all around. And it was Korah down here who starts the rebellion. Man, I would, if, I, if it were me and I was trying to get rid of my, the rebellion, all right, Levites out, let's take maybe people from the tribe of Dan and move them in and give them the job. He doesn't, does he? He puts them in their place, get rid of the heart of rebellion, but do your job. Follow your task. You have been appointed. You've been given a special job in God's kingdom. It may not be the job of Aaron, but it's an important job. And I just think this reeks of God's kindness to his people. Think about that in your own life. He uses you. He he doesn't just cast you aside because you've been rebellious to him at one point or another. It's incredible. Pretty amazing. Um, Any other thoughts or or comments on this section here? Because there's some other stuff in there. Yeah, uh, and the reason why her says responsible, it, it, it's trying to avoid the idea that these priests out here are actually um, like themselves atoning for people's sins. That Christ is, the, but it, the word, Hebrew word does mean that, but it also that you're responsible, like these guys would be responsible if they allow people to try to approach God's um, uh presence apart from going through the Aaronic priesthood. So similar to, like as a pastor, you know, uh, in a sense the elders bear the keys of the kingdom by allowing people to come into the church or casting them out with excommunication, those kind of church discipline issues, or bringing people in. We are allowing people either into the presence of God or keeping them away, right? So we don't actually bear people's sins. Christ does that. But we do bear a certain responsibility if we just let people flippantly come in without repentance and faith. Does that make sense? We, and that's kind of 
These Levites are, are guardians of the way into God's presence. Well, well, but I would say that Aaron in the priesthood, the Levites are just doing the door. So maybe, okay, go ahead, speak on that. I don't want to... Um, Aaron, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Because he is speaking to Aaron, yep, that's right, in that section, yep. So yes, you're, you're correct. The Aaronic priesthood is certainly in the foreshadow of Christ. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's excellent, yep. I do think it's interesting that these guys are called ministers, so they're guardians to keep the people out, but they're ministers to who? The Levites, they're ministers to, yes, to Aaron. And it's, you know, they're ministers to you, Aaron. And I would, I would see Paul when he gets up and he says, I am a slave of Christ. A minister means a servant. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. He is the one whom we're serving. And so these Levites have this responsibility uh, in service to the priesthood, um, and they are serving him. So I... As pastors, we serve the congregation, but ultimately we're serving Christ. He's the one that we serve. So there's all those kind of connections there. All right, let's keep going. A few more minutes. Um, oh, let's bring it up front here. Gary, you want to read for us? All right. I'm going to have you read... Uh, Oh, let's have him read 6 through 18. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Is that uh, all the way through 18? Then the Lord spoke to Aaron Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion, and to your sons as a perpetual due. These shall be yours of the most holy things, reserved from the fire every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they tender to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it. Every male shall eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contribution of their gift. All the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat of it, all the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of which they give to the Lord, I give to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. 
Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at the month old, you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is the twenty giras. Giras, yeah. That's sixteen. Oh, I said eighteen, but that's all right. Oh, but the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But their flesh shall be yours as the breast that is waved and as the right thigh are yours. Okay. So we're, we're going to spend uh, time next week trying to dig into those details, but I just wanted you to hear this in closing. So you go from, okay, I got the big picture. Aaron's our priesthood. And then it goes into all these little details that you're just like, oh, Really? You know, like just like, oh, who cares? But that part of this uh, acceptance of the Aaronic priesthood is in the details. Like God has said, these are the ways that I'm, that I'm revealing myself. And so it's up to us to, to try to understand how do we see uh, New Testament blessings in those details. And that's going to be kind of your job for next week as you look through this passage and, and study that. Um, those of you will be here next week instead of in Danny's class. But um, I will say this. God is creating an interdependence between the people and the priesthood and himself. The priesthood lives, even the Levites, live off of the offerings of the people. It's very similar to what we do as pastors, right? I mean, we live off of that. Um, but yet you depend on the, the, the work of the pastor, right? It's, it's a symbiotic relationship. And what's interesting is since we're having communion today, we'll finish with this. You offer something to the Lord. The Lord consumes part of it. He then, some of it is consumed by the priests, and then some of it is consumed by the actual worshipers. So all three are together having communion with one another. And that's, that's a part of, I think all that's symbolized in our communion that we take today. So, Father, thank you for the book of Numbers. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to never be flippant as we approach you. Lord, we deserve your wrath. Uh, but we have Christ, and I'm thankful for that. Lord, help us to place the appropriate uh, honor and glory on Christ for what he has done and is doing for us. In Jesus' name, amen.